while I was speaking and praying, this is Daniel talking now, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening service or evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. We are structurally in the book of Daniel. We are in what is called the prophetic section of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 is called the narrative section. It's pretty much stories. And you know these stories, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel in the lion's den. Chapters 7 through 12 is the prophetic section of Daniel because he's getting visions, he's seeing angels, and the future is being revealed to the prophet Daniel. Not only that, but there's a second structure to the book of Daniel. Chapter 2 through 7 is arranged in what's called a chiasm. Don't worry about what that is for right now. But chapters 2 through 7 is a chiasm that discusses the future of the nations, the rest of the world. That means that chapter 1 and then chapters 8 through 12 concern the nation of Israel, concern the Jewish people. This is important context for what we're going to discuss today, that we are no longer talking about this empire will succeed, this empire, and then this one will follow that one. It's now specifically concerning, as we read, the sin of my people Israel and the holy hill of my God, which of course is Jerusalem. It's up on the mountain, the Temple Mount is in Jerusalem. Sometimes it's called Mount Zion, which is a broader term, but specifically that refers to Jerusalem. That's the context of what we're talking about. And these verses are in response to the prayer that Daniel made from chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And in the first verse of this chapter, we saw the time of this is in the first year of Darius. And this is incredibly important because This means that this is the first year after Babylon fell when Persia was in command. Darius was the first ruler of Babylon under the Persian Empire. We believe that Darius was what's called a regional king, as in he was ruling over this section of the Persian Empire. Cyrus was overseeing the entirety of the empire. Darius could also be another name for Cyrus. Kings do that from time to time. But the point is, this is the first year after Babylon fell. Now, this is significant because the prophet Jeremiah had, had said that Babylon would fall after 70 years and then the children of Israel would return back to their own land. Jeremiah 25 verse 12 talked about 70 years. Jeremiah 29 verse 10. And Daniel said he was reading in the book of Jeremiah that there were 70 years until Babylon fell. Well, Babylon had just fallen. So he begins to pray and ask God to restore his people. And because we know the end date of when this happened, we can look back and see that God's prophecy was exactly accurate. We are seeing this passage written in 539 BC, right? So this is significant, by the way, because he's going to prophesy some things about Jesus, which is going to be more than 500 years later. But this is 539 BC. If you rock that back 70 years, you, of course, get to 609 BC. What happened historically In 609 BC, two very significant things. First of all, Pharaoh Necho defeated King Josiah and subjugated Judah. 
This was the first time that Judah was ever subjugated. He took down kings and replaced them with kings that he wanted. He renamed the kings after his own fashion. Egypt was overthrowing Jerusalem. Also in 609 BC, a Babylonian general named Nebuchadnezzar finally defeated the Assyrian army. And that moment is known to history as the day when Babylon established itself as the Babylonian empire. Four years later, Nebuchadnezzar would defeat Pharaoh Necho and thereby take control over Jerusalem. And that's when Daniel would be taken away. But Judah's subjugation began in 609 BC, which is the same year that Babylon rose to power. And 70 years later, Babylon fell. And that same year, Cyrus is going to allow the Jews to return home. So God's prophecy absolutely came true to the day. To the day. And so, in accordance with the scriptures, Daniel began to pray because Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and the rest of the Bible made it clear. God said, I will restore you when you seek me, when you repent, when you call upon me, then I will restore you. So Daniel did that. He repented over the desolation of the holy hill. The temple had been destroyed and he's asking for help. And so in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, we have the answer to his prayer. Now it says the man Gabriel appeared, but notice it says the man Gabriel appeared in swift flight. Gabriel is an angel in case you didn't pick up on that. Gabriel is one of only two named angels in the Bible, the other one being Michael. And Gabriel, we talked about this last time, it means mighty man of God. David had his mighty men, the Giborim. You can hear how Giborim is kind of like Gabriel, and El is the name of God. So, right, the mighty man of God, the mighty warrior of God. And it appeared to him in the evening. We've seen Gabriel already in chapter 8, and now he's coming at the time of the evening sacrifice, which would have been around twilight. And he's going to give Daniel what is, I think, the most significant passage in the book of Daniel. I may have said that before, but I was wrong. This is it it right here. Because this little section of scripture gives us not just the, the future of the nations, but the future of the nation of Israel with dates and times attached to it. And as we just saw that the first time God gave a number, it was fulfilled precisely. He's going to give Daniel some more numbers. We're going to see today that most of them have been fulfilled already according to the number, and we will look forward to the rest of it being fulfilled. This is a timeline of the rest of history. And there are a number of ways that people will approach the prophecy that we'll see in verse 24. But as we said at the beginning of this book, we are, if we stick to our principles of interpretation, which basically is called literal interpretation, and I think a better term for that would be regular interpretation, meaning you interpret the Bible according to the regular rules of language, that when Gabriel gives him these words, there's no secret hidden meaning behind it that you have to have special knowledge for or take some sort of drug to see the truth of the world. It's just, it's words that mean what they say. If you Don't take this passage literally, meaning when it says 70, it means 70, or when it says king, it means king, then you, the speculation just runs wild. But when you stick to this principle of God means what he says, according to the words he used, you are going to arrive at a pretty definite conclusion of what happened and what is going to happen. So 
that's what we're going to see. A proper grasp of these verses not only opens up the rest of the prophetic picture to the end of time, but the whole rest of the Bible comes alive. And what we're going to do, as we, especially as we get towards the end, is start plugging in all these other verses that makes more sense and all come together in light of what Gabriel is going to say to Daniel here. So let's read verse 24 through 27, and then we'll go nice and slow and break this down. Here is the vision. Here is the word that is going to help him understand. His prayer for deliverance and restoration from exile. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So verse 24, starting out here gives us a straight answer of what he's talking about, as well as the purposes of what is going to be accomplished. He says 70 weeks. Now, right away, let's look at this closely. Literally there, it says 70 sevens. Those are the words used, 70 sevens. So that's why we use the term week, because a week is a unit of seven. But if we want to be literal, it says 70 sevens. And without getting too much into the reasons why, this is near unanimously agreed that these are weeks of years. These are seven-year periods, mostly because if you take this to mean 70 weeks or 490 days, you end up with absolutely nothing significant prophetically. And uh, that's not to not take this literally. 77s, it says, not 70 weeks, 77s. So 490 years are decreed. This is seven times the previous exile. When Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews were kicked out of their land, it was for 70 years. Well, now you have seven times 70 years, 77s. And the purposes of this prophecy are going to be equally above and beyond what happened the first time. Because here's what I'll tell you. Cyrus, the king, the emperor, is going to allow the Jews to return home almost immediately. The year in which Daniel is praying, they will allow, be allowed to go home. But what God is revealing to Daniel here is not that. He's revealing to him the end of the ultimate exile, the end of Every exile, you might say. He says, I'm not just going to tell you when the Babylonian captivity is going to end. I'm going to tell you when everything is going to come to an end under my Messiah. Notice that this prophecy is for your people and your holy city. I have to hit this again. He says, this is for your people. Daniel's people were the Jews, the nation of Israel. Your holy city is Jerusalem. This is not about Babylon. This is not about the Gentile nations. This is not about the church. This is about 
the Israelites, God's chosen people. Now, the only way you can read the church into this is if you say, well, when it says your people, God meant the church. But would Daniel have understood it that way? When Daniel is praying for the restoration of the Jews to the Jewish capital city, and God says your people and your city, it's very plain what he's hearing here. There is a distinction in scripture between the church and the nation of Israel, as we will see in a few minutes in the book of Romans. We've studied this at length, but it's just good to note this because you can start to get confused and you have to start spiritualizing things in order to make this make sense if you don't get that. But 490 years, 70 weeks, for what? For what? What is he prophesying here? What's going to happen after 70 weeks? Six things. We'll go through them pretty quickly. And I think uh, after just one or two, you'll understand what he's saying. The first thing is to finish the transgression. The transgression. That's singular with a definite article. What is the transgression? This is understood by just about everybody to be the rebellion of Israel. Their rebellion against God that caused them to be sent into exile in the first place. I'm going to bring this transgression to an end. Okay. Second thing is put an end to sin. This is just sin in general. That sin is going to be finished forever. Not just that specific sin that brought all this about, but sin itself as a category. Number three, to atone for iniquity. This is important that sin cannot just be written off by God. Sin's got to be paid for. It's got to be atoned for. This is Old Testament legal terminology. This is Leviticus, Deuteronomy type terminology. Something has to pay for this sin. Okay, number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So not only are we doing away with specific sins and sin in general and paying for them according to the laws of atonement, we're going to bring in righteousness to replace it. And not just that, but everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal both vision and profit. To seal something up, you know this, you, maybe you've seen old movies where they'd finish writing a letter, they'd fold it up like this, you'd put wax on it, you'd put the seal into it, and that would hold it up or close it up. They didn't have staples, right? They didn't have those kinds of things. So that's what they did. So he's saying vision and prophecy will come to an end. There'll be no more need for it. It'll be done. Okay, so we're starting to get a picture of what he's talking about here. Number six is to anoint a most holy place. Literally there is to anoint a holy of holies. Now there is some disagreement on this. I think for the purposes of interpretation, it's not, it's not so relevant. But usually, of course, the holy of holies refers to the, the room in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where nobody was allowed to go in. To anoint a holy of holies, there are some people who believe that this is more general and can be referring to, for example, the Messiah, the holy of holies. Or I think if you combine those two, I think he's talking about when, as the Bible says, the dwelling place of God is with man. When the holy of holies comes to the earth, the one that makes that place holy comes. I think you can see this. All of this together is not just describing the end of a political exile. This is so far beyond that. This is not just the Jews get to come home. There's no more rebellion. There's no more sin. Sin has been paid for. We don't have any need for further revelation or vision or prophecy. And that the Holy of Holies has come. Kind of whatever that means, but you get the point he's trying to make. This cannot just be describing the return of Israel to their land or the defeat of Greece or the defeat of Rome or I would say anything that has already happened. 
Because sin is not done with, is it? It's been paid for, but we're still sinning, aren't we? Has everlasting righteousness been brought in? Well, not yet, it hasn't. We in the church have a foretaste of that. But I think what you see here, he's talking about kingdom come. (laughs) He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about, if you want to use a theological term, the eschaton. When all of this comes to fruition and is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the reign of the Messiah. He's saying when everything that Israel is supposed to be is finally fulfilled and finally comes about and the sacrifices are not needed because there's been atonement and prophecy is not needed because God is with us and there is a holy place that isn't just a symbolic one in the temple. God is giving Daniel a vision that goes so far beyond his immediate concerns. When are we going to come back from Babylon? He pretty much says, just about right away, 70 years, like I said, but Daniel, you got to think bigger here. It's not just 70 years, it's 70 weeks, 77s, that this exile will end after 70 years, but humanity's exile, Israel's ultimate exile will end after 490 years, the end of the world. Knowing this allows us to do a little bit of theological and prophetic algebra here. If we know what he's talking about, which is the the coming of the kingdom, right? The end with a capital E, the end. There are other places in the Bible that talk about that and allow us to inform how we read this passage, although this one is going to give us a lot more. Do we know what he's talking about? He says, Daniel, I'm not just going to tell you about coming back from Babylon. I'm going to talk about when my capital K kingdom comes. When the end comes, like he's prophesied already with the the kingdom of God that is the rock that will strike the statue and it will grow and cover the whole world. Or when the son of man comes riding on the clouds that we saw prophesied. It's the same thing that he's prophesying and he's going to tell him when. All right. 70 weeks until the end comes. He's given him a timeline. This is how much time is left until this comes. Okay. That's the end. What's the starting point? When do we start counting? Verse 25 tells us, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That's the starting point. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So when was that? Is a very important question. Although I think we can see that working backwards will help us here too. There are four basic options that people pretty much choose from, and you can write these down. Really only two are taken seriously, but there are four possibilities. Number one is the decree of Cyrus in 538-539 BC, when he ended the exile and told the Jews they were allowed to go home and rebuild their temple. We read this in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. This is the first major option. And uh, most liberal scholars, for example, and I mean theologically liberal, will take that as their option. The second one is in Ezra chapter 6, when the enemies of Israel wrote a letter to the king of Persia at the time, who was another man named Darius, different Darius. And they said, hey, this is a rebellious city. Are you sure they're allowed to be building this thing? And Darius looks through the records and he goes, oh, yes, they, they are. So give them everything they need to keep building their temple. So there's that decree that it could be. That's not really taken very seriously because it's kind of a minor issue. The third one would be when King Artaxerxes gave a, gave a proclamation that Ezra the scribe could go back to Jerusalem in order to establish worship and to teach the people God's law, Ezra chapter 7. Again, not really taken seriously because that has nothing to do with restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. The fourth option is King Artaxerxes, same king, but in circa 444 B.C., 
He sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall. That's the other major option. So you have Cyrus's decree circa 538 and Artaxerxes' decree circa 444 BC. Now they're separated by uh, quite a length of time. So it's very important that we know which one it is. Now if you're just coming at this cold, it would seem that Cyrus would be the first option, the most obvious one. Isaiah prophesied Cyrus by name well before he was born to be the one that would end the exile. And that's what's going to happen. It's not described in this passage because it hadn't happened yet, but it would happen very shortly after this story here. But there are a few shortcomings with this view, and it's not the one that I take, and maybe most of your favorite Bible prophetic teachers would take as well, and I'll explain why. The command from Cyrus was primarily to return and rebuild the temple, that you are no longer held here, you are allowed to go back. It says in, uh, in verse 25 there that it will be built again with squares and a moat. Moat is better translated their ditch, actually. This is talking about fortifications around a city, the wall and the ditch. They would have a, a deep uh, crevice in front of the ditch so that people couldn't, in front of the wall, so that people couldn't just lean up ladders against it. You'd have to go down and then try to get up. All right, so that's not what Cyrus decreed. And not only that, even if that was what Cyrus said, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer to the king, gets word from Jerusalem about the state of Jerusalem. And listen to what it says in Nehemiah 1, verse 3. Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And the people are ashamed to be there. So... If Cyrus was the one that sent out to rebuild the city, it didn't happen. The city did not get rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt, but as you see throughout the book of Nehemiah, there was hardly anybody living in Jerusalem, and the temple was not functioning at this time. That's why I think the Nehemiah option is better, and there's a second, even stronger reason that I'll get to in a minute. Because if you read the, the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah shows up, and, and Jerusalem is so, so broken down, he can't even get around on his, on his horse because there's so much rubble. He's the one that orders the rubble cleared. He's the one that rebuilt the wall, squares in a ditch, you might say. He's the one that populated the city. They had a, a lottery that one out of every 10 families had to come and live in Jerusalem. Because he says, we can't just have this temple sitting here and nobody's living in it. And that was when Jerusalem began to function again as a walled fortress. So that's why, where I think our starting point is. But there's another way to come at this. We're recognizing the end point. There's, a, there's another point that we can work backwards from. He says, from the going forth of the word to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven and then 62. The punctuation in the ESV, I think, is a little unfortunate because he's not saying there shall be seven weeks until the anointed one comes and then 62 more. They're supposed to be read together. Seven and 62, 69 weeks until the anointed one comes. That word for anointed one, does anybody know what that is in Hebrew? Messiah. That's the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we transliterate to Messiah. So he says there will be seven weeks and 62 for a total of 69 until Messiah comes. Well, we know when Messiah came, don't we? We know when Jesus came, and he was the Messiah. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. And if we start working backwards from when Jesus came, 483 years, 69 weeks, that's going to place us right in line with Nehemiah's decree, or Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah. 
The best date for this, and there are some that have done some really in-depth research into it. I'm not going to dive into all of it right now. Jesus was acknowledged as king when? When was Jesus acknowledged to be the king of Israel? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day when Jesus finally allowed himself to be recognized as the king of the Jews. Up until that point, what would Jesus say when people called him the Messiah? Don't tell anybody, right? He strictly warned them not to tell anybody. My hour has not yet come. But buddy, on Palm Sunday, Jesus' hour had come. He rode in Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. They began to shout and chant his name and to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David. They hailed him as Messiah. Now that happened circa 33 AD. Now there's some dispute over whether it was 30 or 33 AD. Exactness here is not 100% important because, as I'll explain in a minute, the Lord has it all worked out. Let's just say it's 33 AD. If you work back from 33 AD when Jesus came his Palm Sunday, also the year he was crucified and rose again, 483 years, that's 7 plus 62 weeks, using lunar months, because Israel did not use solar months like we do. They used lunar months. They calculated months according to the moon, which averaged out to about 360 days per year. You get back to 444 B.C., now, this is, this is where I say the preciseness is less important here. Because we know when Messiah came, it came around 33 AD. And if we work back 483 years from that, you get to around 444 BC. So we have these two biblical moments that even if historically and archaeologically you're not able to place the dates precisely, you can see that this was 483 years separating these two events. And you as a faith-filled Christian can say, the Lord got the dates exactly right. There are those that say, these are symbolic numbers. They don't mean anything. Well, historically, it seems like it, it exactly works out. Just like the 70 years worked out, the six, first 69 weeks worked out exactly. And I believe that if you were to have an accurate understanding of how long this lasted, I mean, from the day Nehemiah was in Artaxerxes' throne room, you go forward 483 years, according to the proper calculation, you'll see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And there are some, Sir Robert Anderson, among others, who believe they've nailed that down precisely. Harold Honer has done some great work on this. So has Thomas Ice. You can look that up. Point is, he was right. 483 years from Cyrus's decree places us nowhere, biblically and historically. But if you take 483 years from the decree to Nehemiah, it places us at Messiah's arrival Exactly. So we have our answer here. When was the starting point? 444 BC, when Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And after 69 of those weeks, it's Jesus Christ. This verse also tells us what's going to happen in the meantime. It says there will be seven and then 62. Why does it divide them like that? It doesn't tell us. It just simply doesn't say why it divides it into 7 and 62. Some believe that seven weeks is describing the rebuilding of the city and it wasn't really quite finished until about 50 years after that. Or they'll say it was the first year of Jubilee, right? Every 49 years since they came back. I think the better answer here is if you look how Hebrew and Aramaic, how they calculate numbers, seven was kind of their, one of the base units of their measure. Kind of like we use 10 or the metric system uses 10 quite a bit. 7 plus 62 is how they would say 69 rather than just coming out and saying 69. But it really, it doesn't tell us. So speculation is kind of useless here. 
The point is that after 69 weeks, it will be functioning like a city, built again with squares and moat, which is exactly what happened starting in the days of Nehemiah all the way on, that it functioned like a city, but, he says at verse 25, in a troubled time. And that is exactly what happened, isn't it? We've talked about this already, that they went back under the Persian kings, but they were still a vassal state of the Persian Empire. Well, when Persia falls, it falls to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a relatively benign ruler over Judah, but when he died, Jerusalem and Judea were fought over between the Seleucid and the Ptolemy empires, which were two Greek kingdoms, two Greek dynasties. And especially under a guy named Antiochus IV, who was one of the Seleucid kings, he persecuted and tried to eradicate Judaism in the land of Judea, as it was called. They gained their independence for about 75 years, but it's one of the most tumultuous times of Israel's history because the king was not only of the priestly line, which was a no-no, he wasn't even of the line of David, which was also a no-no. Then they begin to establish priests that are not of the line of Zadok, which is the line that was supposed to follow. So you get guys called the Pharisees that start to push back against Greek culture and push back against all these changes. And they're fighting against their kings. At one point, a couple hundred Pharisees were crucified by the king of Israel at the time. It was, a, it was a bad time for these people. They were still under threat from Greece until eventually they were betrayed by one of the people in the king's court, who was a descendant of Esau, to the Romans. And the Romans subjugated them. It was a troubled time. And that's exactly where you pick it up in the book of Matthew, isn't it? It's a troubled time. We start the Gospels in the New Testament with the Roman Empire sending the people home so that he can count them and tax them. The questions they're asking Jesus are things like, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a troubled time. Why am I drawing this out? I'm trying to show you this is exactly what happened. And even if we now so many thousands of years later, can't pin down the dates exactly. It's very clear that the Lord was precise and specific and literal with what he prophesied. The return from exile was significant, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't the end. Maybe you've wondered that. You read about what Isaiah or Jeremiah or Amos or Micah prophesies will happen when the exile ends and you go, this didn't really happen. I mean, they didn't beat their, their you know, pl- swords into pruning shears and they didn't, you know, never have war anymore. And the lion didn't lay down with the lamb. Well, yeah, that's, that's what God is telling Daniel here. He says, we're waiting for the ultimate exile to be finished. We're waiting for the coming of the capital K kingdom. So we've made our way through 69 of these 70 weeks. We're about circa 33 AD. Messiah has come. That means according to verse 24, we only have one more seven to go. Right? We only have one more week to go to see the kingdom come. And you and I know good and well that the kingdom has not come. Everlasting righteousness has not come in. We've not done with sin. We're living in a time where even your sons and daughters will prophesy, according to Joel and according to Peter. So prophecy isn't done. So what's going on? What happened? Look at this in verse 26. After the 62, meaning this is 62 plus the 7, okay, 69, An anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing. Can you see how profound this is here? Messiah will come after 483 years, Daniel, and then he will be cut off and have nothing. And that is exactly what happened. 
That Jesus announced himself as Messiah on Palm Sunday, and on Friday, they nailed him to a cross. He was cut off, and it appeared to all the world as though he had nothing. It's so much for this guy, so much for Jesus. That's why the disciples were so distraught. The Old Testament knew that Messiah would be crucified. I mean, read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and how many others, but look at this here. Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. Jesus knew that this was going to happen too. In Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the big day, on the the end of week 69, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy. They're cheering him. They're celebrating him. But it says in Luke 19, 41, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is so key, you have to grasp this. Jesus expected Israel to know that this was the day, that this was the time. I was discussing with somebody before service, there are those that say things like, I don't believe we can know anything about the second coming of Christ because they didn't know anything about the first coming of Christ. But what you, when you say that, you're missing the fact that they were rebuked for not knowing the first time. Jesus would tell those on the road to Emmaus, oh, you foolish ones, you slow of heart. Shouldn't all of this had happened? And there were people that knew, don't you remember? Luke chapter two, you had Anna and Simeon waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And Simeon had been told, you're not gonna die until Messiah comes. People should have known and could have known and were held accountable to know. Why? I think one reason among many is because God had given them a timeline. From the, de- from the decree going out to rebuild Jerusalem. And their scholars were every bit as intense as ours, if not more so. And they would have recognized that 483 years after Cyrus, nothing happened. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem was commissioned to Nehemiah. We're, we're coming up on 483 years since that. That means we should expect the anointed one to come. And then here comes this, this preacher from Galilee. Right? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Announcing, doing miracles, confronting the religious hypocrisy. And then on Palm Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem and the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They should have known. But instead, Messiah was cut off. And it did indeed appear as if he had nothing. He rose again, of course. However, that salvation did not immediately benefit your people and your holy city, to use Gabriel's words. In fact, it became a reproach and the mark of their judgment. And about 40 years later, they're going to be judged for that. Jesus warned Jerusalem what would happen. Look at this. Daniel said, the people of the prince to come, right? Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So Daniel warned them. Jesus warned them. 
We just read it in Luke 19. They're going to surround the city. They're going to build up a mound. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill all your children. The city and the sanctuary would be destroyed and it would begin an era of desolation for Israel. If we did not have the New Testament, I imagine we would be very, very puzzled by this prophecy. Now, hold on a minute. You say, you say 70 weeks, 490 years. The first 69 are fulfilled just about exactly precisely. But then in between week, four, uh, week 69 and week 70, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. And the end of the city shall come with a flood and there shall be no end to war and desolations will be decreed. Where, where do we have time for this? Where do we have time for this in between week 69 and 70? Now, here's something that might cook your noodle a little bit. I firmly believe that if Israel had received Jesus as Messiah, I am fully convinced that the kingdom would have come immediately. In fact, I believe we are bound to believe that. Although God in his foreknowledge and sovereignty knew what was going to happen, the offer of the kingdom to them was a legitimate one. What did Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Was he lying? No, of course he wasn't. Was he spiritualizing? No, of course he wasn't. So what would have happened then? Let's, let, let me tell you something historically that always drives me crazy. It's like, man, this is amazing. The Lord did this. Emperor Caligula rose to power in 37 AD. You might say three and a half years after the crucifixion and the resurrection. He was a friend of Herod, who you know was one of the kings of Judea. He claimed to be a god halfway through his rule and ordered an image of himself to be set up in the Jewish temple. But the people refused. And eventually he was going to march upon Jerusalem and force an image of himself to be placed in the holy place until he very suddenly died. Now, is this Bible? It's not. But I'm just going to tell you what I see when I look at that. The board was set. An antichrist was prepared who would have come and I believe fulfilled everything that had been written here. But they rejected Messiah. They killed him. Judgment came. Was this prophesied and foretold and was it necessary? Yes, it was. But I'm telling you that it was a legitimate option. But the kingdom was delayed. And the reaction of Jesus on Palm Sunday reminds us that that is exactly what was happening. They should not have killed Jesus. I mean, duh, right? They should not have done that. Well, then how could God have, how could God have fulfilled the prophecy for Messiah to be crucified? I don't know. What if, what if the Sadducees and the Pharisees had crucified Jesus and the people had absolutely revolted and repented and wept in sackcloth and ashes and been waiting outside the tomb for him? Might that have been different? God could have worked it out. But instead, what we see in Matthew 23 Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is expressing God's desire to restore Israel, but their stubborn heart, the transgression has not been finished, you see. And he says then, see, your house is left to you desolate. I believe that is a reference back to what Daniel is told here. Desolations are decreed. For I tell you, Jesus continues, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. That day they had been saying exactly that. 
What is Jesus saying here? He says, until you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and mean it, you're not seeing me again. Well, how do you know they didn't mean it? Because they killed him at the end of the week. When they found out he wasn't going to fulfill their political agenda, they crucified Jesus. We had that same problem today, unfortunately, sometimes. But Jesus is saying, until that day comes, when you can acknowledge me as the son of David and cry out for me to save you, say Hosanna, which means save us. Until you can say that and mean it, you will be desolate, which is exactly what was decreed in Daniel 9, 26. And man, the Jews were given every opportunity to repent. Peter preached to them over and over again. Paul preached to them. But they persecuted the church. They rejected the gospel. They scattered the believers. And they came to a point where they formally separated themselves from the church and said, these people have nothing to do with Judaism, with God's law. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was leveled. The, the stones were split apart so that they could scrape the gold off from in between the stones. The city was sacked, and the Jews began an exile that would last an awful lot longer than 70 years. Desolation. The worst part of this was not the physical destruction as bad as it was. It was the spiritual judgment that came upon Israel for cutting off their own Messiah. Now, there are those that want to say, I don't think that God would ever, would ever do that. Why would God set aside the Jews? Well, what would be the penalty for Messiah coming and then being crucified? Well, we know what it is. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, Paul tells us, and this is a verse you've got to have underlined and starred and memorized in your Bible. He, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul's saying, lest you Gentiles get uppity and start thinking you know a thing or two. I do not want you to be unaware... Of this mystery, brothers, what's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's a hardening of the heart like Pharaoh. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Not only did God allow Israel to be destroyed and scattered throughout the world, he hardened their hearts like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's sobering to think about, isn't it? That was the penalty for cutting off Messiah. Now, God continued to take his gospel to the world, and there are still Jews that get saved. That's why it's a partial hardening, but there's no possibility for national repentance until the Lord lifts that, that block. God chose instead to take the blessings of the Messiah, the promise of Abraham to bless all the nations, to take it to the world without the Jews, to use the Gentile dogs, as they called them, to spread the good news of their own Messiah. Hardening their hearts, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means until God has saved every Gentile that he has determined to save, Israel's heart will be hardened. Can you see again, by the way, the Israelite nature of these prophecies? You can't blend these two things. Otherwise, Romans eleven twenty five 25 makes no sense. If the church is Israel, then how is Israel's heart hardened until the Gentiles come in? That's a foreign concept to scripture, the combining of those two things. There's a distinction. So 483 years, Messiah comes, Messiah is immediately cut off. At the hands of the Jews themselves, Jesus announced that God was going to desolate their nation. And that's exactly what happened. Like Daniel prophesied, the sanctuary and the city were destroyed. The Jews were scattered. God hardened their hearts and instead has been using the Gentiles to fulfill his mission. 
This was also prophesied in Scripture. Hosea chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Now, Hosea is a, is a very interesting story. God told the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why? So that she could cheat on him, have illegitimate children, and be a living parable of Israel's attitude towards God. This is the kind of spiritual adultery you are committing against me. And what ends up happening is she gets so much in debt, it would seem from the text to who is functioning as her pimp or her owner, that she's being sold in the slave market. Her husband shows up, buys her back, redeems her, and brings her back into his house. But he tells her in Hosea 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. What does that mean? We're going to be living together, but there's going to be no sexual consummation between, our, between us. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days." Hosea, I mean, this makes sense, right? She's stepped out on him so much. She's had, he's raising children that are not his because his wife has been living like a prostitute. She ends up sold into slavery, used up. Nobody wants her. He buys her back and brings her home. It's not so much a happy ending. We're going to be living with this loveless marriage for a while. Why? Because it is a picture of Israel's loveless marriage with God that they are enduring right now. Redemption has already happened. The price has been paid, hasn't it? That's what Jesus did. He redeemed all men. And Israel remains God's chosen people, but they are not experiencing the fullness of what that's supposed to mean because they have been hardened in their hearts against Jesus Messiah. And they're living in days where they have no king or prince, no sacrifice or pillar, no ephod or household gods. That's been the history of Israel in this day and age. You can describe Israel's current desolation as a loveless marriage with God. They have no temple. They're not seeking the Lord. And there is no king. But Hosea tells us in the latter days, that will change. Just like Paul said, until. They're hardened until. It's going to be an end because there's one more week to go. We've done 69 so far. Now we're coming to week 70. What's going to happen in that week? Look at verse 27 back in Daniel 9. And he, that is the prince who is to come from verse 26, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, one seven. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. He, who is he? This matters. The identification is important. We skipped over an important piece in verse 26 where it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. This is not the same thing as the Messiah. Prince is not always and not even usually a good thing in the book of Daniel. This coming ruler, this coming prince, his people shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is not the Messiah. This is a reference to the Antichrist, and this is pretty much universally acknowledged. Who destroyed Jerusalem? Well, it was Rome. Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Although, as we've talked about before, not getting into it again, Josephus makes very plain that it was the Syrian and Arab conscripts of the Roman army that destroyed Jerusalem, despite 
Titus's explicit orders not to do that. And there are some that believe that would open up uh, the possibility that this is a, 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 some kind of Ottoman or Islamic caliphate here. I think that is th- biblically possible. We've talked about it at length before, although almost everybody is going to say this is Rome. I think there's some wiggle room for how to understand that because how many nations today still claim ancient Rome as their cultural heritage? And it's something to think about. That's not what we're talking about today. The point is, the ones who destroyed the city from that people will come this prince, this antichrist. And you can notice the time jump here. He himself is not participating in the destruction, but his people are. His people are. And he says, he will make a covenant with many for this last week, for this seven years. This is not Jesus' new covenant, because Jesus is not going to break his new covenant halfway through. God forbid, right? This is what we know from looking at Daniel already, the Antichrist. It says that he's going to unite ten kingdoms together, and all the world will go after him and start to follow him as he conquers the world. And it would seem, because he's saying a covenant being made, and because this prophecy is related to the holy city and to the holy people, I think it is very appropriate for us to expect that this covenant specifically relates to peace with Israel and with Jerusalem. Just think about it right now. If there were a guy right now that was able to work out an acceptable peace between the Islamic nations and the nation of Israel, where they could both possess Jerusalem in a way that was satisfactory to both, That guy would win every Nobel Peace Prize for the rest of time. It's something that we'd want to see. I mean, Israel is still living in desolations in times of war, aren't they? Would you you believe anything, any kind of terrible warfare or bombing or terrible story that comes out of Israel right now? What if a man could put a stop to all that? I might add, by the way, that under Islamic Sharia law, seven years is the maximum amount a covenant is allowed to be made. So there's something to consider that they may be part of this in some respect. But not only that, it says that for half of that week, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and that he will desecrate the temple. Chapter 11 will emphasize that more specifically. He says that he's going to make this covenant. I mean, just picture this. We're coming to the end of time. This man rises up as the head of a new nation, a new new ten-nation coalition, a worldwide empire. And one of the initial successes of this man is he manages to work a peace between all the world, but especially over Jerusalem. But after three and a half years, which we know there's going to be all kinds of things that take place, but for the second half of that, he's going to put a stop to all the worship that's going on in the sanctuary, which we can assume, therefore, that there will be a sanctuary for him to desecrate that a temple will be built in the last days. Now, this prophecy would seem totally unlikely for most of church history. And there are some that even said, this can't mean what it says because Israel isn't even a country anymore. And then 1948, all of a sudden Israel is a country again. And there are very, well, they're not, I don't know how popular they are, but there are certainly forces in Israel and in Jerusalem that are trying to get that temple rebuilt. And if they had their way, they would do it tomorrow. There are, although I must say, there were some before Israel came back into their land who expected that because these things were prophesied, Israel will come back. The early dispensationalists were the the primary ones that did that. But even Bible scholars like Charles Spurgeon, he says, we can expect that one day they're going to be back. They're going to be back in their land. They're going to be in their temple again because the Antichrist has to have something to desecrate. 
And it says this man will oppress Israel for half of the week. Throughout the Bible, this is what we see. Three and a half years. It's called time, times, and half a time. 1,260 days. By the way, those are lunar years, not solar years. Three and a half years. He's going to oppress Israel. And verse 27 has our first reference to the abomination of desolation. It doesn't say it in that exact term. He says abominations come from somebody who makes desolate. And that, that phrase will be condensed throughout Bible history. And it describes when the Antichrist will walk into the temple, put an end to sacrifice, set up an image of himself, and demand everybody in the world to worship him. Paul tells us this in 2 Thessalonians 2. He said, the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul expected that that was going to happen. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, he says, if you're living in Jerusalem and you see that, run for your life. Don't be a hero. Don't even go back into the house to grab anything. Get up and go. The book of Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan, halfway through this week, is going to be ultimately and finally kicked out of heaven. As in, you can't even come here and accuse anybody anymore. And as Satan comes to the earth, it says, enraged because he knows he only has a little time. And he chooses to take that last 1,260 days to destroy Israel once and for all. And he's going to largely succeed. So this last seven years, this last week is not good news for Daniel's people. That little horn that we read about before, the son of destruction, as Paul called him, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist is going to be ruling over those seven years. It'll start out with a false peace, but he's going to break that peace, oppress Israel and start to wipe out all the Jews and those who have come to faith in Christ during that time, Revelation tells us. But... That desolator, it says, has a decreed end. He's not going to last forever. We've already discussed this in chapter 7, verse 26, when it talks about that little horn that speaks blasphemous things, that the Son of Man will come and his dominion will be taken away. Revelation tells us he's going to be the first resident of the lake of fire, which is hell, in case you didn't get that. But th this, this is what's going to happen at the end. The end of the 70 weeks, the eschaton, the end of history when the kingdom with a capital K comes. Let's review this so we can put it all back together where we've gone so far, okay? I know this is a lot of information. Gabriel shows up. There are 490 years of history remaining until the kingdom comes. It's going to start when the declaration to rebuild Jerusalem happens. That happened in 444 BC. Clock starts ticking. 483 years after that, 69 weeks after, he says, Messiah will come and be cut off. That's exactly what happened. Jesus came and he was crucified. Then he said, between week 69 and 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed, the sanctuary will be laid waste, and the people will be scattered and left desolate, which is exactly what Jesus prophesied the week of his crucifixion. And it's what history tells us happened when Israel first rejected the gospel and was then destroyed under Rome. Well, what's going to happen? The Bible tells us there's one more week left. And when week 70 starts, it's going to start with a false peace inaugurated by a, by a world ruler. Everyone's going to think he's a great guy until three and a half years later when he will break the peace 
with Jerusalem. He will demand that everybody worships him. He'll set up an image in the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to begin a persecution of the Jews and Christians that will put the Holocaust to shame. But at the end of that week, the kingdom will come, and all those six things that we described at the beginning are going to come true. So where are we living? We're living in between weeks 69 and 70. I like to describe this time as the desolation of Israel. Because that is, the, that is the biblical term for it. It's also referred to as the time of the Gentiles. It's called the age of grace, the church age. All those things are true. But if you're looking at it from a Hebrew perspective, this is the desolation of Israel. We're waiting for them to receive Jesus. Because that's what Jesus said. You're not going to get this until you receive me. But that can't happen. Because Paul told us that God had hardened their hearts. So do you see why we're, we're in this, some people call this a parenthesis. It's not really a parenthesis because it was prophesied, as I've already shown you. But what's going to happen? There's one more week to come, and at the end of that, Jesus will come back. But he can't come back until Israel acknowledges him as Lord. But they can't do that until their hardness of heart is lifted. So when is that going to happen? That last seven-year period, that last week, which we commonly call the tribulation, using the revelation uh, language and the, all of it discourse language, that's going to be God's way of getting Israel's attention again. I like to say this. Think about it. What would it take for every Jew in the world today to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? Take quite a bit, wouldn't it? Most of them would rather die first. They've completely redefined their religion to be a rejection of their Messiah. So God is going to get their attention again and largely judge them again with this final seven years, until they are so desperate, so hopeless, surrounded by the Antichrist and his armies that they have no hope but Jesus himself. And Zechariah tells us what's going to happen. Zechariah 12, 10, and then I'll read verse 13, 1. First, he describes that they're going to be surrounded. They're going to be under siege. They're going to be about to die. And then God prophesies in the last days, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah wrote that 400 years before Jesus. They were going to look on the one they pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Can you believe how much Jesus language is in this prophecy? On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Zechariah tells us at the end of the 70th week, at the end of the campaign of Armageddon, God is going to lift the hardness of heart from the Jewish people and pour out grace upon them. And Zechariah describes the realization that is going to come upon this nation as they realize we've been waiting for Messiah. He came and we killed him. And now we need him like never before. And what right do we have to call upon him? But they will. They're going to weep for him and they're going to cry out. What are they going to cry out? I imagine they'll be saying something like, Hosanna, save us. We need you to save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was Messiah. He was king. Save us now. And that's when Jesus will return, man. 
You get goosebumps thinking about that. Revelation 19, he rides out of heaven on a white horse with the hosts of heaven following after him. He's going to strike the nations with a sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth. He'll rescue his people. He'll slay the Antichrist. He'll defeat his armies. And he will set up a kingdom in Jerusalem that will last for a thousand years. The kingdom will have come. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. You can read it on your own time. This is what God told Daniel. And can you see how precise these things are? How these numbers, oh, they're just spiritual numbers. But when you actually take them seriously, you read that all of this has been fulfilled exactly so far. So that tells us that the rest of it will be fulfilled just as certainly. He had a vision not just of the end of their exile, but of every exile. The coming of their king, their Messiah. He says, yeah, you're about to go back to your land, Daniel. But something else is coming. It's going to be the ultimate restoration. And after that, everything will be taken care of. I hope you've been able to track this timeline with me here. And you can see people say things like, well, the revelation never says the tribulation is going to last for seven years. Well, we, we see that half of it is going to be the Antichrist ravaging the world. And Daniel 9 tells us that will be taking place during half of a seven-year period. That's why we believe that. Let's review a few things here. There's, there's, I'll give you six things that we can learn about our own time and things that we ought to expect in the future here based on this, this prophecy. Number one is desolation. We are living in the desolation between weeks 69 and 70, brought about by the crucifixion and characterized by the hardness of Israel's heart. That's the time you're living in right now. Number two, what does this say about the church? I think this is a reasonable place to mention this. Jesus said, my church will never be defeated by the gates of hell. And Bible tells us that none of this can begin. Week 70 cannot begin until the restrainer is removed. And this is why we believe that the church will be removed in a rapture, in a carrying away prior to these things beginning. Among other reasons, this is Israel's time. That last 70, 70th week, that's Israel's time. First 69, first 69 was all them, and the 70th is going to be theirs as well. This passage doesn't mention much about the rapture, but I just want to say that's what we're waiting for. That's what we believe here. Number three, the land. The fact that Israel began to return from their second exile in 1948 is incredibly significant. Because for any of these things to be fulfilled, they have to be in their land. They have to be on the holy hill. Add to that, number four, the temple. We believe that at some point a temple will be built in Jerusalem. This does not need to happen before the rapture. In fact, it might be part of the deal that they're going to make with that seven-year covenant they're going to make. That's going to be the Antichrist who cannot be revealed until the restrainer is removed. So I'm not really looking for the temple to be built. It might. Even if it does, it's almost more of an ominous thing than a happy thing because that's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. Speaking of him, this is what we're waiting for or what we're... What will happen? The final empire will arise, a coalition of 10 nations that will forge a seven-year peace with Israel and the world. It'll be broken halfway through when the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation and persecutes all believers for three and a half years. And the end, number six, God is going to pour out grace on Israel. They're going to call out to Jesus and he will return to rule and reign on the earth. If the first part of this thing was fulfilled even down to the date our inability to specifically identify it notwithstanding, then we can expect that the rest of this will be fulfilled in just the same way. 
Don't say, okay, the first bit of this was, was literal, but now it's spiritual because we haven't seen it yet. Trust that God meant what he said. We can learn from this also that we have to pray for the Jews who are our enemies, but they're also our brothers, Paul said. Pray that Messiah returns quickly and saves them. And if you yourself have not yet bowed the knee to the coming king, if you've not received the foretaste of the kingdom, which is what Christians have, we get to taste the kingdom ahead of time because of what the Holy Spirit does in us, then today can be your day. You can be saved from that judgment that is awaiting everybody who lives in rebellion against God if you'll turn and bow the knee to Jesus because he is king. He's coming back for his people and he's going to reign forever and ever.